0: What we're going to be doing over this uh, next little while as we look at God's Word in Philippians 4 is we're going to be talking about the topic, amongst others, of money. And I know that that gets some people on edge uh, to be talking about money and you may be one of those who've kind of been a little put off by the church or even suspicious that the church is only ever interested in talking about money, particularly your money. Uh, in which case I I do apologise but we don't talk about it every week in fact more likely coming along to SALT uh, is to have the experience of don't you ever talk about money here because we don't pass a plate around and uh, things like that but what we do by matter of course is to open up a book of the Bible start at the beginning work our way through to the end and surprise surprise the topic of money comes up Uh, it comes up often when you're looking at Jesus teaching uh, but we're going to see it here in this passage uh, in Philippians chapter 4. So hang in there with me I I pray that it'll actually be encouraging to us um, but it might also be challenging and that's a good thing Uh, we don't go through life just seeking to be comfortable uh, but God addresses us and it might be that today he's going to rub us a little bit that might put us slightly outside of our comfort zone And um, so why don't we pray now as we look at uh, this part of God's word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this letter to the church in Philippi. We thank you for your teaching uh, through the Apostle Paul that speaks to us about uh, the importance that you have um, given to our lives through Christ, the value that you help us to see in one another, that we could support and uh, encourage those around us. We thank you for the priority of your good news in seeing people saved. And uh, as we look at what Paul teaches about the secret of contentment uh, this afternoon, I pray that you'll help us to hear it clearly and that you'll give us insight into how we might respond. Amen. Well, slavery is alive and well. Uh, Many of you will know that throughout the world there are still people being stolen and uh, shackled and sold for various reasons. But there is another type of slavery I think that is very alive in the West, in Australia in particular, and that is the slavery to discontent. In fact, we live in a world that feeds discontent all the time. Uh, in a capitalist uh, society that people sell and buy goods the way that that works is by making you think that you would be better off if you had something that you don't currently have and you just see that everywhere all the time Um, it's in tv shows so you don't just have homes and gardens do you I mean, that would be a little bit boring. You've got to have better homes and gardens. You don't just have designs, you've got to have grand designs. Um, you, uh, you might be one of these people. I, I confess I'm a, a little bit like this. Uh, I've grown up in the Mac world, uh, which is a highly appropriate thing for someone called McDonald, but I've been fed the discontent every year. There's a new MacBook, there's a new iPad. Uh, There's a new iPhone. I've been waiting for the iPhone 14 uh, to come out so that I can upgrade, uh, not because mine doesn't work anymore but because I've been fed the the view that I'll get faster speeds. I'll get more of the screen. I'll now get a, a 48 megapixel camera, which of course I've always needed. And now finally I can have what I need and so I'm going to be content when I finally get my hands on an iPhone 14. It's like that, isn't it? Whether it's the new model car, whether it's the upgrade to the kitchen, whether it's the remodelling of the back deck, whether it's improvements to the bathroom, whatever we're involved in in life, there's always something that will make life better. And I guess it's what some people have called the if-only trap. You know if only I, I could have a, a better holiday where the sun always shone and it wasn 't ruined by rain then i 'd be happy. If only I could get the promotion so that i didn 't have to do the kind of work that i 'm doing now so that I could do the work that the people above me seem to do and, and do quite easily then i 'd be happy or if only I had the relationship that I desire i 'd be happy if only I had the income that other people around me have, then I'd be happy. If only I could move to the coast and live on the beach, then I'd be happy. But friends, we know that it doesn't bring contentment. Sometimes the move itself, sometimes the improvement, sometimes the the shift, it actually brings a momentary pleasure because we've been looking forward to something and we get that something, but how quickly does it go? Interesting, various people have been interviewed over the years who've had more money than you could possibly count and they've been asked what is the thing that they think will make them happy and typically they answer just a little bit more. doesn't matter whether it's 40 grand a year or 40 million a year, just a little bit more is what they think will make them happy. Well, the Apostle Paul interrupts this way of life. I think he probably confronts it in our circumstances today more dramatically than he would have in his circumstances back then because it's so built into the fabric of our society. But it's not just the fabric of our society. You see, you you can live differently to the people around about you if you choose to. It's actually the fabric of our minds and the fabric of our hearts. It's not just that we have advertising, which works by feeding discontent. It's that our hearts delight in being discontented. So how do we learn the secret of contentment? Well, the great news in this passage, Paul the Apostle speaks about that. And I want to look at this and then look at some of the implications that contentment has then for how we handle the things that we have. So look with me, if you've got your handout there, you might like to follow along uh, from verse 10. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. So the first thing that we learn about the secret of contentment is that it doesn't depend on the circumstances. Paul has learnt the secret of contentment and learnt that it's not something that comes about by being in this situation or that situation, by having this or not having it. Um, Where's he writing from? Let's remember, he's not sitting down, sipping a latte, a cafe Roma. He's in prison. He's being held captive. And as he writes to them from prison, he's able to say, look, I I know what it is to be wealthy. I know what it is to be bankrupt. I know what it is to be a free man. I know what it is to be in chains. I know what it is to be well. I know what it is to be sick. I know what it is to be enjoying popularity. I know what it is to be beaten up. Paul is somebody who knows all sorts of circumstances. In fact, he had lived life to the full and discovered in the process that it wasn't changing his circumstances that brought contentment. No, the contentment came from something else. Not whether he's sick or whether he's healthy, not whether he shops at, at Country Road or Best than Less. It, it's not whether he drives a, a fancy car or an old Rattler. It actually comes about not through circumstances, but through the Lord. Notice he says there in verse 10, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. And if you remember back earlier in the chapter, he kept talking about rejoicing in the Lord, about a peace that came in the Lord, about praying to the Lord. He's focused on God. That's something that we see so clearly here, that the focus for Paul is God and Christ the Messiah. The Apostle Paul knows that contentment comes not by circumstances, but by knowing the one who rules over all circumstances. And so we can see in verse 10, he said, sorry, verse 12, he says, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. And I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. The secret of contentment is found in relationship with God. And we see in verse 13, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. It's not a human trait that Paul has. It's not that he's just so laid back and so cruisy that it doesn't matter what happens to him in life, he'll be okay. Okay no I take it he understands that it's it's better to be free than to be in prison that it's better to be well fed than it is to be hungry it's better to have a a cloak to be warm in the cold that's why he asked Timothy or whoever it was in one of the letters to bring his cloak and something to read now Paul knows that some circumstances are, are tough that they're difficult and and other circumstances are much easier and more enjoyable, but true contentment comes not in satisfying the desires of our own hearts by having certain circumstances, but by knowing the one who rules over those circumstances. So that if he's well fed or if he's hungry, if he's in prison or he's free, if he's wealthy or he's poor, He's able to keep his trust in God because God is at work through all of those circumstances. He says, I can do this through him who gives me strength. That's a bit of a favourite verse, that one, isn't it? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Um, Having spent many years as a rugby chaplain, uh, I can tell you quite a few people have actually written 413 on their strapping Uh, the Fijian sevens player Serevi always had 413 on the strapping on his wrist it comes from this verse I've got two friends who've actually tattooed this on their body one the whole of the verse across their chest what does that mean They they can tackle anybody they can run faster than anything they can score whatever tries well possibly they're pretty good They get well paid for it. But no, this is a verse that's saying we can stand firm against the tides of society and culture, our struggle with greed, our struggle with envy. We can stand firm through the strength that God gives so that we can be content whatever circumstances. So if we're to learn the secret of contentment, I think we need to know that it will come from God not through getting a better job. It will come from God not by getting a good return on our investments or finding a cheaper mortgage or having a better car. We need to know that true contentment will come through the God who gives us strength to be content, trusting in him whatever we are going through. And why is it that we can be content? We'll come down to verse 19. Ultimately, it's through an eternal perspective that we can be content. You see, he says, my God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. What more could we possibly need than to have all of our needs met according to the riches of Of His glory in Christ Jesus. So, friends, if you struggle with discontent, is it because you are looking to the wrong place to try and find contentment? Have you bought into that if only trap? Are you worried that your circumstances need to change if you're going to possibly find contentment? Well, the reality is that God can make you content. He's in the business of strengthening you to be content whatever circumstances you're in. Be interesting to interview, wouldn't it? Some people who, who live in multi-million dollar mansions, who sail on multi-million dollar yachts, who own multi-billion dollar companies, and interview some people who live a subsistence life in a mud hut with a thatched roof who have no electricity and no running water and ask them questions about contentment. And I think it would tell us a few home truths that it's not through circumstance that we learn contentment and ultimately it's through God himself. Now if we can be content, then one of the things that flows from this I think is that we are actually liberated, we're freed up to be able to provide for, to care for, to love, to look after those around about us. When we're discontent, we're focused on keeping and getting what we can for ourselves. Look at the way Paul talks from verse 14, he says, Yet, It was good of you to share in my troubles. Um, There's a word that keeps coming up in this letter. It's a word, uh, well, the original word is koinonia. It means fellowship. But fellowship gets used of of a number of different things. There's a fellowship in the gospel. There's a fellowship in God's grace. There's a fellowship in the spirit. There's a fellowship in suffering. And in verse 14, yet it was good of you to fellowship in my troubles. And then verse 15, moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared or fellowshipped with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. The word fellowship here is being used of giving and receiving. It's, It's got a financial aspect to it. Um, Now fellowship in church circles we tend to think about that's what we do when we have a bit of supper afterwards uh, or a group that we go to but it's a word with a much richer meaning than that we we can share together, we can partner together we can have uh, hot sausages and a drink together That, that can be fellowship but we forget the fact that it can be used of this partnership of giving and receiving a kind of financial partnership or fellowship. And this was brought home to me a couple of years ago when our son, Marcus, he's our youngest, was applying to receive a grant uh, from the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade to study and work uh, in a country in Asia, in Indonesia. Uh, part of uh, a a special kind of project that they have called the New Colombo Plan. And he worked through, and and, uh, there were many applicants for this, but he ended up receiving a financial fellowship. That's what they called it. Uh, It was a fellowship that would enable him to live and study and work for 12 months up to 18 months potentially in Indonesia. And there were two types of fellowships, there were the ones called fellowships that were widespread being given out through a whole range of Asian countries. And there was a special one uh, that, that actually put you in particular touch with the ambassador or the high commissioner from each of these countries that was called the scholarship. So there was the scholarship and there was the fellowship. When we think about fellowship, It's important, I think, that we don't just slip into thinking warm fuzzies. Paul is talking here, not just about having a good time with the Philippians, but that they participated, they joined together with, they shared with him in his troubles, that they were involved in supporting him financially in the fellowship of giving and receiving. In fact they were the only church that did he says uh, for even when he was in Thessalonica you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. So Paul has this kind of gospel partnership with the Philippians from the first time when they first became Christians they partner with him, they fellowship with him in financial support. And what we see I think is that when people learn to be content in Christ they're liberated to be able to use what Christ gives us in fellowship with those around about us we don't need to be hanging on for our own sake Christians here are being generous to Paul when he's in need and he's appreciated their support now what is it that enables people or what is it that motivates people to share in these circumstances? I think there's a number of things Um, not just from this passage but if we were to explore more widely in scripture one of the fundamental premises is the reality that everything we have and everything we are has been given to us by God. God is the one who owns this world he's created this world he sustains this world he has a purpose for this world and what God gives to us is from his grace for us now we might be thinking well hang on I've worked hard for that money and yes you probably have but God gave you the ability to work for that money. He gave you the job to earn that money. He gave you the the circumstances to get that job, to earn that money. It's a gift that has come from God. God is the provider. God provides us with all things for our good. Not only does he provide things for our good, he gives us the opportunity from what he gives us to support those around about us. So in one of Paul's other letters, he says, that people are not to steal but to work so as to be able to share Um, and the way he puts it is an interesting way he says don't use your hands to take from other people use your hands to work so you can give to other people that's that's a mindset that comes from knowing that God will meet all of our needs so we don't have to be desperately looking to provide for ourselves. We, we know that everything we have belongs to God. It, it's given to us by God. So we can use that for God's purposes. Thirdly, we can't actually take any of it with us. Um, you, you may have heard the saying made famous by Malcolm Forbes, who was a, a billionaire, he who dies with the most toys wins. Um, Now, I don't know exactly how many toys he had, but I know he had over 50 Harley Davidsons, which is a lot of toys. But you've got to ask the question, wins what? When Malcolm Forbes dies, what what does he win? Um, There was a a T-shirt that you could get, he who dies with the most toys wins. And and I had this T-shirt and somebody said, well, there's actually a better one. And they sent it to me. He who dies with the most toys still dies. I actually had a guy at at, um, some public place I was at tell me off for wearing such an offensive t-shirt. Like it might not be true or something. (laughs) See, that's the reality, isn't it? So if God's given us these things and God has purposes for these things, then he's given us this time to use these things for his purposes, which I take it isn't about accumulating all that we can for ourselves. But if we put all this together, if we learn contentment, learn to be content, learn to be satisfied, learn to be happy with what God gives to us, then we're liberated to be able to provide for those around about us, liberated to be able to provide for those who are in genuine need. And Christians have been known for that, haven't they, through the centuries, being at the forefront of those who provide for the needs of the communities around about them. People who give to the poor, people who provide education, people who've pioneered healthcare, people who look out for the needy, people who have given generously to be able to provide for others. Christians have been known for that. We also see here that there is an opportunity to invest what God has given us in ways that will reap an eternal reward Um, have a look at the language that uh, goes on here It's, it's quite interesting Paul says verse 17 not that I desire your gifts what I desire is that more be credited to your account I've received full payment and have more than enough I'm amply supplied now that I've received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. It's interesting to see here who gets the credit. Um, In in verse 18, I have received full payment and more than enough. Clearly Paul's benefiting from people's financial support. Um, So that's a help to him, his blessing, his benefit there. Um, but also notice verse 17 not that I desire your gifts what I desire is that more be credited to your account so Paul in commending their giving to him isn't simply saying thank you for giving because I needed it and you helped me out though he is saying that he's saying what I desire is to see that God is at work in you and by you giving to me I've seen the fruit of that at work and that will be credited to your account, not that there's necessarily a, a financial ledger that's been worked out in heaven that that when you give you're kind of um, you know seeing that ledger rise or whatever i don't think it's to be pushed too far, but it it's a kind of a it's an economic way of speaking, isn't it Paul's talked about profit and loss back in chapter three here he's talking about you give which by implication means that your account should be dropping right because you've taken say ten thousand dollars out of your account and you've given it to people who are in need but the spiritual perspective on that is that that's actually credited to your account because to use the language it's more blessed to give than to receive that God actually works in the giver credited to their account you see what I'm saying so there's a benefit to the receiver, there's a benefit to the giver, but, but there's there's also something about this that is pleasing to God. Look at verse 18 again. He says, I've received all this from you and from Epaphroditus. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. He uses kind of worship language so that as they are supporting him in his gospel ministry. So they are displaying worship to God. It's interesting, when I was a kid and uh, I grew up going to church, Methodist church, uh, there was a part where there would be a plate that was passed around. And I can still remember the little intro to the passing of the plate around for people to put money in. And it was this, your free will offerings for the work of the Lord will now be received. It's worship language, isn't it? Your free will offerings for the work of the Lord will now be received. And the plate was passed around, and people had the opportunity to give generously by working out how many coins they had in their fob pocket and dropping them into the well, it didn't always follow. But here is a picture, right, of, of knowing that God's met all of our needs leads to contentment. God will provide for us, so the things that he gives us, we're able to share with others and benefit them. As we do that for gospel reasons, it benefits us. And it's an attitude of worship towards God that we would do that. It's a broad picture that's on view here. The receiver, the giver, God himself. And I think what you've got there is a picture of healthy fellowship of a healthy patterns of relationship between Christians, between churches. In fact, Paul, as, uh, as he goes about his ministry, you can pick this up by, by reading uh, sometimes quite explicitly off the page, but other times it's a little bit more subtle. Through many of his letters, he bears reference to taking up a collection. Um, from what we understand there was a famine in Jerusalem and the Christians in Jerusalem were in great need and so Paul was travelling around and as he did so he took up a collection for the Christians that were in Jerusalem and he talks about that extensively in his letters to the Corinthians and as he does so he comments on the fact that the Macedonian Christians probably thinking of the Philippians gave generously out of their poverty But he also says this Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. See that the giving that God desires the, the, is a free will offering. It's not a compulsive offering. It's not a law. It's, it's not a, a set of regulations that need to be followed so as to please God. We're actually liberated so as to be able to give generously from what God's given us. That's the attitude. It's an attitude of grace. In fact, notice how he finishes his letter. It begins with grace, it finishes with grace. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen, verse 20. Greet all God's people in Christ Jesus. The brothers and sisters who are with thee, send greetings. All God's people here send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. See, it is, it is God's grace to us that will move us to show grace to others. And if we get God's grace shown to us in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, then what better foundation can there be to being gracious to others? Many times Jesus tells stories that illustrate this picture by like the guy who's forgiven a debt that he could never 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 repay billions of dollars perhaps couldn't possibly repay it and the person cancels that debt completely what is that well that's our sin being cleansed completely through Jesus cancelled before God but then in this story This person who owed billions remembers that he's owed 20 bucks from a coworker and he goes and demands that he give that $20 back and give it back now. And we're horrified by a story like that. How could somebody who's had a debt of billions possibly be harsh with someone who owed 20 bucks? And yet when we fail as Christians to show grace to people around us, we're doing the exact same thing as the man in that story. But if we learn that everything we have comes from God and if we learn that secret of being content, knowing that God will meet every need that we have, then we can be liberated to show grace to those around about us. Friends, it would be hard to go away from a passage like this without reviewing our attitude towards giving, to thinking about how we use the thing that God has given to us. And sure, it's, it's not just money. How do we use our time? How do we use our, our gifts, our talents, our opportunities? How do we use our belongings? our vehicles, our homes, um, other things that we might have. How do we, how do we use our relationships? How, how do we use our study? How do, how do we use our work? How do we use things for God's sake? It's right to think broadly about being gracious, but it would be wrong to skip over money. It's been said that one of the last things to be converted in a person is their bank account or their wallet. Or in my case, my phone. How is that the case? Is it showing deep down a discontent? Or a failure to trust that God will meet all of our needs? Yes, I know that he will, I know that he will, but I've got to invest because I'm just not sure what's happening with the economy at the moment. No, we don't know, do we? And for some of you, you might be feeling like circumstances are getting scary. Interest rates are rising. House prices are rising. Things seem to be escaping and getting away from you. You may know that struggle of discontent. But you know, it's also possible to have plenty. And still not to be satisfied. And still be wanting more and still failing to trust that God is the one who will meet our needs. It's interesting, in the Bible, in the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, when God gathered his people and made them that holy nation, that kingdom of priests, that his special chosen race, he gave them a whole heap of guidelines for for living and trusting him. We saw it last uh, term didn't we when we're looking at Exodus. He said, trust me on the sixth day, you need to pick up double manna and not go out on the seventh day and try and get manna. He said, trust me that you can only keep enough for that day otherwise it will go rotten. And very quickly they failed to trust and they grumbled and they complained and that can be our tendency we can think no we've got to do the best we can to be in control of this and yet God gives us what we have whether it's little or whether it's a lot not just for our sake but for the sake of meeting the needs of those around about us for the sake of furthering God's kingdom for the sake of supporting those who minister the gospel for the sake of seeing people fed, seeing people housed, seeing people taught the truth about God, a whole range of means and and ways that we can use what God has given us for the sake of his kingdom. The Old Testament had a particular approach. The people were encouraged to give 10% of their produce. The word that was used was tithe, so if they had 10 acres of barley, they would give away an acre of barley. If they earned 100 shekels, they would set aside 10 shekels and they would give that. Actually, no, technically not, because um, if you were gonna be converting the produce into money, it became 12 and percent. That's a often overlooked fact that you can read in the Old Testament. Um, but basically, this idea of a tithe has, has kind of uh, continued through churches. I, I was brought up with that idea. It, it's a good pattern from the Old Testament. It's not actually ever formally encouraged in the New Testament, but it's not a bad way of thinking. And it's good sometimes just to do a little bit of a, a, a kind of brain exercise as to what that might mean. I, I did that this afternoon, um, Thinking of just a, a few figures. Let, let me give you some. We, uh, we have 115 people on our, 115 adults on our church directory. Adults. Um, the minimum wage in Australia is $812.60 a week. If we were to take the minimum wage, and multiply that by 115 people and then take 10% of that then, and give that say through salt to the ministry of the gospel and the wider needs of people that would be a bit over $400,000 a year um, or break that down that would be I actually worked out it would be close to thirty three thousand dollars three hundred and thirty three <laughs> per month. Now what does that mean? Well, if you get the the figures of what's given at SALT, and Barb provides us with these figures, she's our treasurer, we are giving to the work of the gospel through SALT fourteen to fifteen thousand um each month. So if we were all on the minimum wage and all giving 10%, then we would multiply our giving by two. That's kind of, that's the mental picture. Um, But there's all kinds of circumstances behind that. Um, I know that we can afford to give way more than 10% of the minimum wage. I know that some of you don't earn anything near the minimum wage. And I know there's nothing absolutely special about 10%. It's got to do with whether we see the opportunity to show grace and to support those around about who are in need, to actually further the work of the kingdom. And you see, when we start to talk about numbers and details like that, it's easy to squirm. It's easy to kind of think, oh, I'm, a, I'm a bit uncomfortable now speaking specifically, talking about actual figures. And, and I know that we are all so different that to talk about any particular number would make some of us feel a bit annoyed and some of us feel pretty smug. It's not the way forward. But the way forward, I take it, is to think through how we are feeling about what God is doing in us, what he's given to us and what could be possible. We're all getting older. So here's another thought, what are we gonna do or what others gonna do with what we've got when we've gone? How can we support the ministry of sharing Christ with others? in our latter years or in our wills? What could we do with a passive income, which I know many of you have? Not an active income because you've retired and there is various things that are happening out there with the the way money gets handled. What can you do with a passive income? What can you do with an active income? I just want to get you thinking. I want to get us thinking. And in order to help us with that, inside your handouts, there's a little brochure that we've actually put together in the past. Um, And so there's a couple of things that are a little out of date in it. Um, But it's generally up to date around guidelines for giving at SALT. Um, And I encourage you to read through that if you're married um, read through and talk about it with your husband or your wife Um, because it's good to be on the same page uh, in a marriage when it comes to money be in agreement as to what what you're doing but just think that through of course giving to salt's not the only way uh, to support those who are in need to support the ministry of the gospel there are opportunities that we have in our own midst, many of you are supporting Katie in her ministry at the university. Some of you have just come on board to support uh, Luke and Dania as they head overseas to Taiwan. Uh, Others of you potentially support people involved in mission work that you've connected with over the years in different places, our family have well since the early days of having kids right up till now supported children um, and their communities through the ministry of compassion Uh, in our case in western Kenya Uh, some of you do that sometimes whole churches get behind uh, projects in a particular area that's something that we could be thinking about as we move forward as a church Last year, we had opportunity to support um, the, the young couple whose house burnt down, down near Taree, um, to support the building of, of a church and school and the repair to some houses in Pentecost Island in Vanuatu. Um, we support the development and planting of a new church in Coffs Harbour out of the giving here. Um, we've been benefiting from other churches as we've been getting underway ourselves. These are opportunities for fellowship. Um, we've got friends here from Lismore this afternoon, and just um, as as you know, Lismore got smashed at the start of the year with the floods. And uh, my friend here went to Sydney and had the opportunity to speak to some churches in their denomination in Sydney and so would you partner with us to help provide support for the ongoing needs of ministry in our church in Lismore because so many of our people are struggling at this period of time just to make ends meet. And so they were able to keep staff on and continue that ministry employment and so on. Anyway I just wanted to share a few little stories there at the end but let's take the opportunity to remember what we've got from God what that can liberate us to do and I think it's the best time to develop a a contentment that leads to a spirit of generosity is right now it's not something that ever works when you put it off um, because if you're putting it off until your circumstances change then you haven't got it You've missed the point. So do it now. And those of you who are parents, just to smuggle in a little bit of application, it's a good thing to encourage your kids with uh, from the very beginning. Just share one story on that. Um, One family of my grandkids uh, teaching their kids to think about money um, coming from God to be used in, in helpful and godly ways and they have three jars, so the, the, the jars are personal use, savings and giving to God's work. You can always take things from the, 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 um, the personal use and put it into savings, you can always take stuff out of savings and put it into giving to God's work, but they're teaching their kids not to give the other way. So you don't take out of God's work to put it into your savings and you don't take out of your savings in order to spend it on Lego. All right. So th- there's just a little tip for you. All right. Well, I was going to finish about 20 minutes ago and, um, and take questions, but I can see we've got some ankle biters running around. So um, Matt, what if we say to parents, collect your kids, if you've got kids to collect and the rest of us sing?